Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, If you want to meet your teacher at the back there. As they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful that you are our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend. Thank you for calling us to be your own. Thank you for leading us. And Lord, as we look now to your word, as we study what you have to say, Lord, would you lead us from your word too. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to see and to love what we hear. Lead us to follow where you're calling us, Lord. And Father, I want to offer a special prayer for my friend, Bob Kempel, as he's um, recovering from surgery. Lord, would you be with him this morning since he can't be with us? Grant him grace and peace. I pray that you would fill him with a sense of your love and your presence and that you would heal his body soon. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So you remember my outline for the book of Exodus is God redeems us, God delivers us, God rules us, and then God with us. That was kind of the outline. And uh, I remember when I first introduced it, I said, I think the transition from, um, from God delivers us to God rules us is somewhere around chapter 16. It, yeah, it is. Guess what? <laughs> this is the scene. This is the, isn't it nice that it was a short little reading? It's another one of those transitional pieces where you go, well, I'm not sure what's going on there, but it's actually extraordinarily important because as we move from God delivers us, where it was wonderful to talk about how Christ has redeemed us, and we saw that in the plagues and what God had done and all those things, as we move from there and we head towards the law, God rules us, it's really important that as Christians we understand that law correctly. We approach it in the right way. Otherwise, we might get a, a really bad idea of how law functions in our lives. Either it doesn't apply at all or it's all law. And, and the truth is much more complicated than that. So as, my, as a pastor, as my pastor's heart, I'm like, I want to stop before we get to the section where we introduce the law and spend some time unpacking it. And Pastor Moses beat us to it. Because that's what this section really is about. This is what this little transition piece is doing, is he's setting us up to understand law before we get there. Now, we've got a ways to go before we actually get to, quote, unquote, the law. Because that won't occur until they're at Sinai. And God speaks from the mountain and announces to them the Ten Commandments. And then calls Moses up on the mountain and starts giving him his rules. That will be the beginning of, quote, unquote, the law. But before we get there, we've got to do what I call the law before the law, the pre-law. What is the law before the law? And, and that's what this section is going to introduce to us. That's, that's what we're going to see this morning is the law before the law. Uh, so what I want to do is talk about the two locations. Notice we don't have a map because we still don't know where we're at. <laughs> um, we're not sure where these two places are. Uh, Mara, we don't know where that is. Elam, there's a chance it might be this one wadi that we don't know for sure. And you know what? Ultimately, it doesn't really matter exactly where they're located. Um, When we talk about the wilderness of Shur, that's, you know, the Sinai Peninsula, that little pointy bit between Africa and Saudi Arabia. It's the northern portion of that. It's a giant place. It doesn't matter. So we go three days into that. Who, Who knows where we're at? That's not what's important. What's important is the two places God brings us to. So let's take a look at those, and then I want to go back and take a look where God speaks in that center portion. So let's cover real quick those two places where they, they left. So they go from the Red Sea, and you remember that, that whole episode, God destroyed the Egyptians. The Egyptians are now cut off. There is no going back. They, are, they have utterly been wiped out. And the response to that deliverance was the song at the sea. 
That was that song we sang last week. Miriam came out with the women and sang a song of, of praise to God because he drowned the, the uh, riders and the horses in the sea. And then Moses kind of picks that up and continues to add to it through their journey, and so he puts that song there. So that was the response to that. What we come to now is they go out of the uh, wilderness. They, they leave the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness about three days traveling. And it says that they found no water. Now, the Israelites were not camel-based nomads. A camel can go about five days without water. It's not a problem. Um, the Israelites have herds. They have sheep. They have goats. They can't go that long. So going three days into the wilderness, even though they've come from the Reed Sea, this is a big deal. I mean, this is really frightening to go three days without water. They could die. Their sheep could die. The, the flocks could die. So they really are in a bad place. This isn't just, you know, they, they're going to grumble. And we tend to think, oh, they're just whiners. But this is a legitimate concern. I mean, they're in deep weeds at this Deep weeds. Wouldn't that be nice? They're in real, real trouble right now if they don't get water for themselves and for their flocks. And so as they're traveling this three days, suddenly they see water. And they go, oh, great, we're delivered. And they, they pull up to the water. They, they come up, and they reach down and take a big handful and take a big slurp, and it's undrinkable. It's, it says it's bitter. Maybe it had a really high mineral content. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I would go to my grandparents' farm. They had a, 100 acres in kind of middle Michigan, and it had a well on the farm. And when you drew water out of the tap, it smelled like rotten eggs because it had a really high iron content. And it took me about a week of being there before I could actually drink that stuff. This ain't that. This is worse than that. This is so bitter, it's undrinkable. And so since they can't drink it, they, they grumble against Moses and say, what shall we drink? Um, one of the commentators said, you know, that's, that's pretty accurate for the Hebrew, but I don't think it captures the flavor of the complaint. The, the complaint is, we can't drink this stuff. That's kind of more of what's going on, is they're really frustrated with Moses, and so they yell at him, we can't drink this. So the place is called Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitterness. But it's the people who are kind of bitter too, aren't they? They're really upset. Having just sung this glorious song of praise to Yahweh, now they're grumbling. Um, and if any of you think, wow, I would never do that, <laughs> go just review your own history a little bit. Meditate on it this week and see if you would never do that. One day, praise the Lord and the next grumble because you didn't get what you, what you thought you needed. So they grumble, and what does Moses do? Moses cries to the Lord. That is really important because I think sometimes we can look to our leaders, our spiritual leaders, and think they are the answer men. They're going to fix everything. They're, you know, if we got a complaint, we'll go to them, and, we can, and they've got it. Um, I got bad news. We're just like y'all. We're just like every one of you. There's nothing special about us. What we're supposed to do is what Moses did, which is when the complaint arises, we call out to the Lord. So, for example, uh, Samuel, when he's addressing Israel, he says, Moreover, for me, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. That is exactly what Moses is doing here. It would be a sin for him to not pray to the Lord. So the people grumble and complain to Moses, and Moses turns to Yahweh and says, What are we going to do? And here's God's answer. It's a miraculous, it's a wonderful answer. God says, well, there's a tree. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it just strikes me as a bizarre answer. Is Lord, we don't have any water. The water's undrinkable. Well, there's a tree. Okay. 
It's a, it's a log. What do you want me to do with it? Well, he says, pick it up and throw it into the water. That seems like an odd thing to do, too. Now, one of the commentators was saying, well, this is probably a, a tree that had natural sweetness to it, and when it went into the water, it sweetened the water, kind of like dumping stevia. You know stevia? That's a natural sweetener. Dumping some stevia and some really bitter iced tea or something. Um, I don't think that really answers the equation here, though, because if it's so bitter, it's undrinkable. Can you imagine how much sweetness you would have to put in? And now it's so sweet, it's undrinkable. So what is probably going on here is shock and awe, this may be a miracle, that, that God had him throw this log in there and that it made the water drinkable. Um, so that's, that's that part of the story. Now skip to the next one where they go to uh, Elam. So they came to Elam, and there were springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Again, we're not sure where it was, but picture the place. 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. Now, I doubt that somebody went and stood there and went, one, two, three, four, five. Hey, there's 70 palm trees. Um, it's kind of like when we say, uh, I've told you a million times. Does that mean I've actually counted and I've told you a million times? Uh, what happens if I've only told you 999,099 times? That, that's, it's, it's inaccurate, right? It, I think this is just a Hebrew way of saying there were a lot of trees. Now, the springs of water, they may well have counted because they had to spread out their herds and get them over there. But it, it, it is the picture here is this is a beautiful oasis that they've come upon. So they've got water. They camp next to the water. They've got water for themselves. They can feed their, their flocks and herds. It's going to be wonderful. And then the trees, if they're date palms, they've got food. They could stop and eat for a little bit. And so they camp there. And so that's the story of the movement. We're not done. We're, we're going to head off from here, and we're heading eventually towards Mount Sinai. But for right now, we stopped at Elam. So uh, I'll come back, and we'll understand why these two places in a moment. Um, it, the, the question is, why did Moses write this this way? Why did he put this story the way he did? Uh, Mara, God speaks, Elam. Why in that particular order? Surely, on that three-day journey, there were other stories he could have told, but he chose to tell these stories. Um, surely, when they were heading from uh, Mara towards Elam, we don't even know how far of a distance that was, there was other things that may have happened, but he chose to tell these particular stories. And so it's kind of wonder, make you wonder why. And I said before, when God speaks, that's the important part, right? <laughs> this morning, I kicked myself, and I said, I wish I would listen to my own advice on this. Um, I was wrestling with this, this uh, message all week, trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. And I knew that the part where God speaks was important, but I didn't let it really soak in as much. And so I was kind of wrestling with it. So really, I'm, I'm, from personal experience, I'm telling you, when God speaks, that's the most important part. And so um, if I don't listen to me, please, you do, and then remind me to listen to me. So they're at Mara, the water's bitter. God says, throw a log in the water and it'll be drinkable. And so they can drink it. And then there's an interruption. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them. Now, in Hebrew, the Lord is not there. It says there he made a statute and rule for them. There he tested them. But we know for a fact it must have been God speaking because the way it ends is, um, uh, or just after he starts speaking, he says something about, I am the Lord, your healer. The way it ends is, I am the Lord. So that's obviously not Moses making it. Moses is not the Lord, nor is he the healer. So God speaks to them, and he makes a statute and a rule. And here's the beginning of the law. 
This is where we were beginning to get into this idea of God giving Israel law. He made a statute and a rule. That's probably a hindiadize, which means two nouns sitting together that mean one thing. It's not like there was a separate statute and it looks like this, but then there's a rule that looks like it's probably saying the same thing. What statute? What rule? What did he, what did he give them there? What law did he announce to them there? Um, one person said, you know what might have happened? that God may have given them some law here and it was lost for all eternity and we don't know where it is. It's like, what a really bad idea. <laughs> I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to read this. Um, but he doesn't really explain this, this elaborate law. When we get to Mount Sinai, we'll get some detailed laws and you do this and you don't do that and this is how you do that and this is how you do this, but we don't get that here. So what do we get? This is what he says. Um, he says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So what command and statute did he give them? Right off the bat, diligently listen to the Lord your God. This is the law before the law. This is the law that you have to obey to obey the law. And that rule is, it is wise, it is best, it is good to obey God. Um, in the three laws of robotics, there's these, Isaac Asimov wrote these three laws that all robots must obey. Um, and then he talks about the zeroth law, and that's the law before the law. That's the law that introduces these other ones. It's a similar kind of thing here is God is, before he gives them Mount Sinai, he tells them beforehand, it, it really is best if you obey me. You really should listen. You really should obey and, and hear and do what I say. And so he, he tells them to diligently listen. And the New American stand, Standard says, carefully listen. The New American Standard says, give earnest heed. Um, the message by Eugene Peterson says, hear, hear diligently. And the Christian Standard Bible says, carefully obey. In Hebrew, what it says is, hear, hear. Hear, hearing. And, and when a word's repeated in Hebrew, that means very, right, intensified. So those are really good translations that really does capture the idea. Give careful heed to, pay careful attention. So when the CSB, the Christian Standard, says carefully obey, it kind of shortcutted that word hear and went right to what does it mean? Well, if you hear and you don't obey, that's not helpful. So they're kind of shortening that, that connection between the two. And it says that... He wants to hear the voice of the Lord. And I think that's really important. When we get to law, what we have to hear is the voice of the Lord, not the voice of somebody else, because we're pretty good at inventing rules. Um, I saw some paperwork this week that said, um, do you certify this person as a good and upright Christian? And yes. And do they do this? Yes. And do they abstain from alcohol and tobacco? And I went, show me. Where in the Bible it says, I mean, it's a good idea. I'm not advocating, you know, go get drunk and smoke cigarettes till you die. But aren't we adding a law here? Aren't we adding something that isn't necessarily in the scripture? So what we have to do is we have to give very careful attention to the voice of the Lord, first and foremost. Because, because if, if the New Testament teaches us anything, we're really good at inventing rules. We, we can pile them on. And those additional rules will not help us. But it will help us if we hear the voice of the Lord, if we listen diligently and do what is right in his eyes. 
in his eyes. He looks and he says, I see what should be done. I can see the right that should be done. And his eyes are reminding us he can see what's going on. So he's aware of us. Give ear to his commandments. Listen to what he's got to say. And then listen to the threat. The threat is, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. That struck me as an odd response. Hear this, or I'll do to you what I did to the Egyptians. And, and I don't think he means specifically, or I will send darkness, or I will send hail. I think what he's talking about is that general, the way I treated the Egyptians, if you turn from me, I will treat you that way too. He's reminding us that this was a, a judgment. The, the plagues that fell on Egypt were a judgment for them. And so what he's warning Israel is, if you treat me the way Pharaoh treated me, I'm going to treat you the way I treated him. I'm going to respond in like way. So what does that mean? Remember how Pharaoh treated the Lord. Early on in, in the discussion with Moses back and forth, Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Chapter 5, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So there's, there's the picture that God is painting here. If your response to my commandments is like Pharaoh, I don't know who you are, I don't have to obey you, then, then you're in trouble. Then danger is coming. So watch that you pay attention to the commandments, that you give heed to them. And then the most puzzling part of the passage to me is what God says next. He says, obey my commandments, or I will put diseases on you like I did on Egypt. I am the Lord your healer. Shouldn't that be, I am the Lord your judge. I am the Lord your lawgiver. I am the Lord your ruler. But his response is, I am the Lord your healer. Now, the immediate context is disease, but this doesn't fit together because what he's saying is, I don't want to put those diseases on you. Don't do that and you won't get those diseases. Why? Because I am the healer. Avoid this and I can heal you. Don't do that and I can heal you. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting picture that he paints for us of his response and his relationship to law. So why is God the healer in the middle of this? Well, first of all, it says that he tested them. He, he, he gave them this commandment and he tested them. He brought them to Mara and he tested him. When God tests somebody, he isn't doing it because he doesn't know. He's the only one who can know the heart of man. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Well, God does. God knows it. So what does it mean that he tested them? It means he's testing them so that they can see what they're made of. Not so we, he can see. He knows. He understands. So he tests people. He doesn't tempt them. He doesn't torture them. He tests them like you're testing a metal. You, you, it says you test a, a metal to get the, the imperfections out of it, to draw it out, to make it clear and pure. So he brings his people to Mara, and he tests them there. So this is what God is doing. And, and in that testing, what he promises is he's their healer. He's going to be the one that heals them. So that kind of raises the question, then what was the whole point of the law? Because often when we hear this, you've heard the term Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Rapha. That, that's what literally it says there. Yah, it doesn't say literally Jehovah. That's not God's name. It literally says Yahweh Rapha, God heals. And, and I've heard um, numerous people talk about that and, and, and uh, people with big hair and, and TV stations 
they say God will just heal everything wrong with you and you'll be all perfect and wonderful. What's the immediate context of this? Is the immediate context of this physical ailments? I think the immediate context is law. Follow my rules and I will be your healer. So what is it getting at? What's he saying here? Well, to understand what he means by I am your healer, we have to go back now, and this is what I was angling for, is we have to understand the role of law. Uh, what does God mean by, invent, by creating and establishing his law? What is he accomplishing by doing that? Um, and, and do we care? Do we pay attention to it? Well, there is a point, there is a purpose for God's rules, for God's, what he establishes. Romans 5, starting in verse 20, says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where the law came in, sin increased. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing law so that my sin would get even worse. But there's, there's a point in that. Don't forget, he's the healer here. And then Galatians 3.23, now before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law comes in and what it says is it inflames trespass. It makes us recognize the sinfulness that we have to begin with. And then what, what Paul says in Galatians 3 is it was our guardian. The word behind that is actually child caretaker. It described a slave whose job it was to take the child from the household to where he would go to school and sometimes even participate in the schooling and then make sure he safely got home. He was a child guardian, a child conductor. And, and that's the function of the law. The law is not the end of itself. The law is intended to take us someplace. And where does Paul say it takes us? To Jesus Christ. It's supposed to lead us there. So as we move into this section of Exodus and we start studying law, don't lose sight of the point of the law. The point of the law is not the law. The point of the law is to lead us to Christ. So when we talk about law and how it leads us to Christ, I think it's really important to notice that law is only external. There is no law against joylessness. We don't see anything in here that says, if you won't have joy, then this is what must happen. There's no law against bitterness, about feeling bitter. There's no law against sorrow. Those are all internal feelings. Those are things inside us. But there are laws against hitting your neighbor or stealing or these external things. So what law can do, it can only go so far. It can only take us so far. What law can do is it can regulate the external. It can regulate our actions. But it can never get at the issue of the heart. So while it may make us behave well, it will never make us love behaving well. Does that make sense? We, it, it's a, the issue is the heart. So we can set up a, 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 a rules. We can set up a big board with rules on it. And we can get certain behaviors out of people. But we will fail them if we don't head to the heart, because the heart is really the issue. Um, the author of the book, The Little Prince, whose name I will slaughter if I even try it, is a French guy. Um, the, the author of that once said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, 
but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So do you see where he's going with that? I can say, let's build a ship. You go buy, some, you go get some wood, you get some nails, let's do this and this and this, and we'll get only so far. But if I come here and I talk about the glories of sailing on the sea, where we could go, where we could travel, if I can get your imagination to picture that far off island, let's go to Fiji. Let's sail to Fiji. Do I then have to say, now go get some wood? Won't your heart be motivated to say, I want a ship, not because I want a ship. I want a ship because I want to go see that bigger thing. I want to go see that beauty. So that's kind of what's going on with the law here, is the law is necessary, right? They're not going to sail to Fiji if they don't build a ship, are they? They can, they can have all these wonderful desires, but eventually they're going to have to gather wood. Eventually they're going to have to s assemble tasks. They're going to have people work or they won't get a boat made. But what the author of The Little Prince is saying is don't start there. Start at the heart. Inflame the imagination. Get them to see what beauty it could be to sail on the sea and then, don't, and then see if they don't build you a boat. They'll, they'll get that boat built because they want to. So that's the difference is the law says do these things. But it's not sufficient. It won't take you all the way. However, if you can inflame the heart, if you can get to the heart, then what will happen is you will do those things because you want what's bigger. Not because I want a boat, but because I want the sea. So when we talk about having people follow God, we, I don't want people just to follow the God because of the rules. What I want them to do is rather to long for, to desire, to, to worship the endless immensity, immense beauty of the Lord. That's where the heart goes. And then you go, that's what I want. What are the rules? How do I get there? But if you say, here are the rules, that's as far as people will go. That's the problem is they won't go far enough. So would you enjoy the sea? Would you like to go see the sea? And some people are going, I get seasick. I don't want to see no sea. <laughs> you know what I mean. Work with me on this. Where is your heart? Where is your desire? What is it that you want? So when God tells Moses, look, I'm establishing this rule, this, this law for you, this statute, what I'm telling you is obey the Lord. And then he says, and that's not sufficient. It's not enough to just do that. I'm your healer. I'm not your judge. I'm not your ruler. I'm your healer. I'm the one who will come and touch you and bring you healing. I'm much more intimate than the prison guard who will beat you to get you to make the bricks. I'm much more intimate than, than the governor who will dictate how many bricks you make. I'm your healer. I'll come in with you. I'll be with you. So that's the promise that we're getting is God is the healer. We have to see that the bigger picture is what's most important, the God behind the rules. And so there's a book by um, a philosopher named James K.A. Smith. Don't let the word philosopher freak you out. Um, he writes for philosophy people. He said, I heard him in an interview say, yeah, I write for the six people who care about this. But he's also working on writing for the popular audience too. And it, he said it kind of it costs him some credibility because if you do that, you're seen by those six people who care about the one thing you're talking about as selling out. And he said, well, I don't think I'm selling out. I, I think what I want to do is communicate these truths to everybody. So he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And it's a great book. It really gets to this heart issue. Listen to what, what Smith says. He says, we aren't really motivated by abstract ideas or pushed by rules and duties. And I just add here, unless we love, this, unless we love to sound smart, then we, we're motivated by abstract ideas. Or if we want to look good, 
then we're, we're motivated by rules and duties. But he said, basically, at the heart of it, um, it's not the rules and duties that motivate us. He goes on. Instead, some panoramic tableau of what looks like flourishing has an alluring power that attracts us, draws us towards it, and thus we live and work toward that goal. We get pulled into a way of life that seems to be the way that we arrive in that world, that promised world of goodness. So when God says, here's what I want. I've, I've promised you something. I've told you about a, a place that I promised to your father Abraham. Do you want to go there? And, and they can picture that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Okay, here's what we're going to do. And it is the promise of deliverance. It's the problem not just of out of Egypt, but into the promised land that will draw them, that will, that will carry their hearts along. So then in the midst of saying, okay, here's what we're going to have to do. We've got to have these rules, and I'm your healer. I, I will bring you a, a heart of healing so that you will obey these rules. The, the heart issue is what's central here. I will heal you. I will bring you health and wellness. I will bring you joy and happiness so that we can make it there. Now, will you come tomorrow with me? When we get tomorrow, will you, will you trust me at Mara, the bitterness in life, the difficulty? Can you trust me there? Or is it you just want water and that's it? Because watch what happens. I'll bring you tomorrow and, and you'll taste the water and, and you'll see the bitterness, but I want the bitterness out. I want it extracted. I want it removed. And so we'll throw this log in and the bitterness is now removed. Can we remove the bitterness from your heart? Can you, can you follow me? Will you, will you come with me to this? And so then after he announces this law, where does he lead them to? 70 palm trees and 12 springs. What he's promising them, what he's picturing in those two locations with this, this command of rule in the middle is he's saying, follow me, trust me, love me. I can deal with you. I can promise you Bitterness can be dealt with, and I can promise you that joy can be had. These two locations are, are equally available to you. Notice he didn't lead them straight to Elam. They stopped at Mara first because he was testing them. He wanted to draw out of them that bitterness and show it to them. What do you want? That's one of the other things that, um, that Smith says is when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't ask them, what do you know? He looked at them when they were following him. He said, what do you want? And they said, well, we want to follow you. He said, good, good answer. So that's what God is doing with Israel here. He's leading them out. He led them to, to uh, Mara, and he said, what do you want? And then he leads them to Elam, and he says, now what do you want? In, in the place where it's bitter, where it's difficult, you want me? What about 70 palms and 12 springs? Do you still want me? That, that was his heart. That was his desire all along. And so law, and this is really important when we move into the law, law can only do so much. And it can only regulate the external part of the person. It can move your hands and your feet, but it can't move your heart. It has to go so far. Once your heart is motivated, then the law directing your hands and feet makes more sense. So uh, Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking about law and Gentiles. So remember, this is the law before the law. What law did they have? Was there no law until Mount Sinai? Well, it can't be. There had to have been law before Mount Sinai. Because don't forget, he just judged Egypt. How do you judge somebody who hasn't broken a law? They, they had broken some law. What law did they break? They didn't obey God. 
they, they refused to obey God. Pharaoh just looked at him and said, I'm not, gonna, I'm not listening. So, so let's back up a little bit before we get to Sinai, back up another notch. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Did they violate a law? God judged them. He rained fire and brimstone down on them. Did they, judge, did they violate a law? What law? Who articulated to Sodom and Gomorrah, this is how you should behave? We don't have anything written down, but they knew they did wrong. There was no question. It wasn't just sexual immorality. There was tons of other immorality, too, that you would go and say, bring this person out, this new person. We're going we're gonna to violate them. That wasn't just sexual perversion. It was social perversion. There was tons of problems in Sodom and Gomorrah, and so God judged them based on what law? Back up again. The flood. God comes in the flood and he says, mankind is rotten. They are violent all the time. Their heart is always bent towards evil. Therefore, I'm going to wipe them out and start over again with Noah. Based on what law? At that point, the only law that God had ever articulated was don't eat from that tree. That tree was no longer available by the time of the flood because there was a huge angel with a sword standing in front of it going, you're not getting past. So it is, that wasn't the law they violated. So what law? What law could they have violated that God would judge humanity over and over again like this? It's the law written on the heart. We know things are right and things are wrong. We don't have to be told it's bad to steal. On our, our ring, our smart uh, doorbell, they, people post pictures, and you know what? Almost all of those, viol- all those crimes happen at night. Why do they happen at night? Because people know it's wrong to do it, and they don't want to be seen. So we, we have a law written on our hearts. So Romans chapter 2, when Paul is dealing with the issue of law, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and there I think he's talking about Moses, when they don't have the law, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show the work of the law is written on, the, on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting of thoughts thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is a law written on the heart. So the law before the law is not just Moses. It doesn't start there. There is a law that we know what is right and what is wrong. And one of the things is you should obey the Lord. And since the fall, since Adam looked at the tree and looked at his wife and said, I don't think God's plan is is best here. I think what I want to do is best. Since that moment, we have decided we wouldn't obey God. And it's been inherited and passed right down through us. We we continue to violate that law. You have to violate that law before you violate any other laws. You have to say, God doesn't know what's best, therefore. And so that's what he told them at Elam. That's what he, or um, not Elam, uh, Mara. That's what he said to them is, here's the statute, here's the command I'm going to give you. Obey me. That's the law before the law. Obey the Lord. And then he realized, then he shows them the law in and of itself is not sufficient. It won't do it. And so he promises, I am your healer. I will heal your heart. I will work in your heart so that you will desire to do what is right. So we could say with Paul in Romans chapter 7, Why is it that the good that I want to do, I don't do, but the bad that I don't want to do, I wind up doing? And do you notice what's at the heart of that? I want. I don't want this. I do want that, but I don't always comply with it. Paul is talking about from a changed heart. 
And so when we talk about law, when we come to law, when we look at all these elaborate rules that God's going to give us, we have to remember the law won't do it. You can't come to the law and say, if I do this, 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 and this, God will like me. It has to start with, Lord, I love you. You have healed my heart. You have healed my, my inner being. Now, what is it that you're calling me to? And then you will get obedience. Then you will get following the Lord. Then you will get the kind of obedience that God is desiring for Israel. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? How well do they behave from here on out? No more grumbling, right? Until next chapter. <laughs> and then no more grumbling after that. And then they want quail. And, and no more. Don't forget what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for your instruction. So we can look at this and go, this is what a heart that doesn't love the Lord looks like when it tries to obey the law. A lot of grumbling, a lot of turning against. So in, in light of that, Christian, what's our relationship to Moses? What's our relationship to the law? Well, it shows us something not about Moses because he didn't invent this. He went up on a mountain and God announced it to him. What it shows us is something about the God that we love. We may not understand it. We may not get every little jot and tittle of it, every little piece of it, but it shows us something about the God that we love. And so when we look to law, we say, well, what is that showing me not about um, my behavior, but first and foremost, what's it showing me about God? And, and once I have it down, what this means about God, then I say, that's, that's the kind of person that I want to be. God, what is it that you're calling me to do in this? And as we get through this, what you'll find is Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus did it all. He said, don't think I came to, to um, abolish the law. I didn't. I came to fulfill the law. So as we look to the law as Christians, we're looking through Christ to the law and saying, now what? Now how do I behave? Because we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is where we're going. That's our trip. That's our, our journey is we are being conformed to his image. And so that's why the law comes to us through him. So please don't ever think if I do X, Y, and Z, God will like me more. Or if I do these four things, then God will be really good to me. Um, there's plenty of that on, on, I don't want to say Christian, but on TV of, you know, if you just obey in this particular way, God will bless your socks off, and won't that be great? And what do you want in that state, in that situation? I want the blessing, baby. <laughs> I want the money. Come on, give me the money. And God now is a means to an end. But what happens if you want God? Then when you want God, then as he gives himself more, as he gives you more of himself, you're not looking for the next thing that you can get. You become more increasingly satisfied, more delighted in who he is, and you desire him more. That's being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the point of the law. It is our child conductor to lead us to Christ, not to stuff not to self-satisfaction, not to pride, because boy, I nailed it. I got all those things down. You want to see that? Look at the, at the Pharisees. They had it. Jesus himself said, hey, you know what? Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And people were gobstopped. What do you mean? I can't be more righteous than them. It's, that's not the point. The point was their heart. They hated Jesus and they killed him. So if you desire Conformity to an external rule, it will only take you so far. If you desire God and conformity to him, that will take you all the way. 
And I think that's what, Jesus, that's what uh, Moses is teaching us here at this, um, at, between these two um, oases. I am your healer. Not just physically, although Jesus did plenty of that. I am your healer. I will heal your heart. And if you don't, if you try to obey these rules and you turn away from them, this is the natural consequence of it. So listen to God. I will heal your heart. I am your healer. And that's, that's what we need to remember now as we step off towards Sinai. Before we get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, we need to have that point nailed down in our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to abuse the law and thereby be abused by the law because it will only crush us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that um, the promise of the new covenant, the promise that you made through Jeremiah, Lord, the promise that you repeat in the book of Hebrews is that you will write your law on our hearts, that you will give us a law that will bend our desire towards you. And Lord, thank you for this, this new covenant promise that you've given us, that it's not merely external, but you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, renew our hearts, renew our minds. Your Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our heart the love of God, a love for God, the love God gives to us, and a desire to follow. And Lord, without that, we would be hopeless. We would still be with the Pharisees, grumbling and complaining, judging other people, being proud of how far we have come along that path. But Lord, instead, we look to what you've done in us and we say, this is all God's doing. And thank be to God. Thank you for saving us. Lord, would you guard our hearts and minds now as we move into the section of Exodus that's about law, about your ruling over us. And Lord, would you give me the ability to capture in words that concept of, of the heart before the externals. Um, I, I don't have much confidence in my own ability to do that, but Lord, I have great confidence in you. And so, Lord, would you please be with us as we go, um, as we, we head into chapter 16 and on. Uh, guide us and, and lead us. Father, as we've come from Mara and we head toward Elam, uh, Father, in the meantime, I pray that we are walking with you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.